Grab your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians 10 is where we'll be. Finishing out this chapter today, Lord willing. We have several people missing today. There are those who are traveling and those who have been sick or undergoing different procedures. We had a a couple of busy hospital weeks here recently. Let's see if we could tone that down, huh? Let's let's see if we can get healthier here. But uh, we want to care for one another, of course, and show our love for one another and how we do that. So please see who's not here today and reach out to those people and let them know you miss them, you love them, and see if there's anything you can do for them, all right? Well, 2 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 12, I'll read the passage down to verse 18 and then open with a prayer. 2 Corinthians 10, 12, it says, For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves, but when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond our measure. But within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure, to reach even as far as you. For we are not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach to you. For we were the first to come even as far as you in the gospel of Christ, not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labors, but with the hope that as your faith grows, we will be within our sphere enlarged even more by you so as to preach the gospel even to the regions beyond you, and not to boast in what has been accomplished in the sphere of another. But he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. For it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for all that you've given. You are the great provider. You are creator. You are faithful God alone. We ask that today as we look into your word that you would guide us in this endeavor, that we would see all that it is that you have for us, and that we would, by your Spirit's power, be able to make application to our lives. Lord, I ask that I would not get in the way of your word this morning, but that your word would be clear to your people. And we all ask this together in Jesus' name, amen. Well, The question, who is best, or the question, who is the greatest, is nearly always a dumb question. It comes up in a variety of contexts where you say, who is the greatest, fill in the blank, or who is the best blank of all time? And nearly every time, it's just really, really dumb to ask that question. Just yesterday, as uh, we were gearing up for the football season, Uh, Jackson and I were talking about sports, and I was explaining to him about how the joy of watching sports, a lot of it, is actually found in watching or listening to people talk about sports. Not just in the game itself, but you have the pregame that goes on for a long time, even weeks in advance. You have the postgame that goes on where they show all the replays a billion times and they talk about it over and over again. And that is at least half the fun, is just listening to other people talk about sports. But one of the things that comes up in talking about sports is they will inevitably talk about the greatness of certain athletes. Is this guy the best we've ever seen to do it? In fact, uh, there's just to show you how big of a nerd I am, there's a uh, YouTube channel I subscribe to, uh, several baseball ones because I love baseball, and there's this uh, young man who does this thing called narrative ball. 
He says, give me a name, any name at all, and I'll do a stat search and just try to make him sound like the greatest athlete of all time. So his listeners will throw out the most random name, a guy who only played one or two seasons, and make him sound great. And he'll go in and he'll, you know, crunch all the numbers and look at all the history and it'll come, he'll come up with something like, this guy has the highest left-handed batting average against curveballs thrown by right-handers on Sundays in his first 100 games. Or, or he's second only to Babe Ruth, so he must have been a really, really great guy, you know. Now, contrast that with saying, oh, this guy hit the most home runs ever. Usually the shorter the evaluation is or shorter the statement is, the, the better it is. Or this pitcher has the most strikeouts this season. Well, he must be a pretty good pitcher. See, if, if we want to make ourselves sound really good, we can find ways to do it, can't we? When we want to compare and contrast with other people, we can find ways that we're better in every way if we wanted to. You know, the worst sports question is who's the greatest athlete of all time? Now, isn't that just really, really stupid? You've got quarterbacks compared to goalies, compared to point guards, compared to right fielders, different sports. I mean, how do you even do that? Probably the greatest athlete of all time was some guy in some high school on some other continent who no one had ever heard of because he never got a chance. But we like to examine and find out who is the best, who is the greatest, especially if we can win that conversation and we can be the best. Who is the best Christian at Orchard Hills Bible Church? See how, see how dumb this is? I'm thankful none of you raised your hands too, by the way. <laughs> but it's just terrible when that kind of thinking comes into the church. It's destructive. It's lethal when that kind of thinking is found in the house of God that's cancerous. And when there's competition in the church, it really becomes a dog-eat-dog type of environment. And that's what Corinth was dealing with. You know, Corinth just had all sorts of problems. And here is yet another one. There was the cancer of competition in that church. Look again at verse 12 with me. We started to look at this last week, but let's continue. Paul says about him and his missionary companions, we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they're dumb. That's what he's saying. They're without understanding. That's a dumb thing to do. And so let's dwell on this and start by... As we evaluate how to evaluate ourselves, let's start with this thought. We have to recognize that our fallen nature desires to be better than other people for the sake of self-promotion. Our fallen nature has this desire built into it to be better than other people for the sake of exalting ourselves. Toward the end of Jesus' life, when He was introducing His supper that we just observed, that's been observed for 2,000 years now of the church, He was saying how there was one at the table who was partaking in this supper who was going to betray Him. And so, of course, the disciples started murmuring among themselves, beginning to discuss among themselves, as Luke puts, puts it, who, who would be the greatest. And then look at the very next verse, in Luke twenty-two twenty-four, and then it says, there arose a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. 
So they were murmuring among themselves, who was going to be the one to betray? And the very next verse says, and then they were debating who was going to be the greatest. How fallen is this? I mean, how, how, how sinful, how rotten is this to act this way? But don't you know that everybody who is a disciple of Jesus Christ, we still carry around with us some of these aspects of competitiveness, of pride, sin, in this body of flesh. And disciples have to learn that Jesus is to be our consuming focus, not ourselves, about who's best and who's greatest. It's a really difficult lesson for disciples to learn. And that's what the word disciple means, by the way, is, is a learner. Well, uh, central to what we're learning as followers of Jesus Christ is this. It's not about us. It's about Him. It's about the one in front. It's about the one who's leading us. It's about the one who's, who's guiding us, the one we're following. And this is a difficult lesson for us to learn, and perhaps it pops up in your life in ways that you don't even recognize. Sometimes we think, well, we're beyond that. We've grown up. We're past that. Not until glory, my friends. You will always have this, this root of pride lingering that you have to watch out for. That's why the leaders of the church are instructed in the book of Hebrews, make sure no root of bitterness springs up. Because in the church, you've got all these root systems. And we can't let these things spring up. And in this context today in 2 Corinthians 10 is the context of Christian ministry. As we're talking about not making it about ourselves, not making it a competition, we also have to recognize that each of us has a ministry from God that differs from somebody else. Each of us has been gifted in a unique way. No, no two people have, have been wired the exact same way or gifted the exact same way by God. We are unique people as Christians. We are individuals. And as we come together in the church, as we come together in the Christian life, we are not to view our differences as a basis for competition. We are not to view our differences as grounds for debating, well, who has the best difference? Who is best among all of our differences? That is not what God has done. But God has put us together with these differences that we would all be faithful to our unique callings. And that's what Corinth wasn't understanding, especially the false teachers in Corinth who were pushing the church in this direction, measuring themselves by themselves. When they compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. It's very important to understand this. Paul himself never sought to usurp someone else's ministry, never sought to make himself look best in front of other people and in front of other believers, never sought to come out on top or to be the one always talked about. In his letter to the Romans, Paul demonstrated this at the end in chapter 15, verse 20. Paul was saying to them that he hoped to go into faraway lands to preach the gospel. He said, thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. Paul didn't want to go where someone had already gone and come in and reap all the benefits or all the fruit of their hard work. That wasn't his calling. Paul's calling was to go somewhere where no one had heard the gospel before and to start a brand new work. Now, he wasn't against building on someone else's foundation. That just wasn't his calling. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Verse 10, Paul talked about his planting work, but Apollos' watering work. And he said, too, that according to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. 
and another is building on it. So he wasn't concerned with people building on the foundation that he laid as a pioneer missionary, but he was concerned with this, that each man must be careful how he builds on it. Those in Corinth who were the false teachers were not being careful how they were building on Paul's foundation. They were building on Paul's foundation in a way that was seeking to rob Paul of his influence that he had with the church. They were actually trying to reverse Paul's influence with the church that God planted through him. Let's turn to the book of Acts together to see more of this. I I think it's really important you grasp this in the life of Paul to understand more about where he's coming from personally in his letter to the Corinthians. Go go with me to Acts chapter 9, verse 15. We'll start there. We're going to look at four passages in the book of Acts to see this in the life of Paul. As he recognized differing ministries, as he recognized the the differences in ministries among Christians, and he was always seeking to be faithful in his unique calling, not to bump up, push out another Christian, but to respect what God had done through other people. In Acts chapter 9, verse 15, this is the Lord Jesus speaking to Ananias, who was going to meet Paul, and the Lord says this of Paul, "'Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine,' to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. What did Jesus call Paul for? What what was he calling Paul out for? To be an instrument to reach Gentiles, kings, and the sons of Israel, but especially Gentiles. You'll see this again in Acts 22. Turn with me there. Acts chapter 22. You'll see the same thing come up where Paul is recounting what the Lord Jesus called him to do. Remember, we're looking at the unique calling of God and the unique gifting of God. Acts chapter 22, verse 21, Paul again recounting what Jesus said. He says, He said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Paul's calling was to go and reach the Gentile people, the non-Jewish people. Again, Acts chapter 26. Turn to Acts 26. Paul recounting what Jesus had said to him. Starting in verse 16, Acts 26, verse 16. Paul is quoting Jesus where Jesus said, But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I, which I will appear to you, re- rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open up their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Paul was to reach those Gentile people with the gospel. He was to go beyond the Jewish people to the Gentiles with the message of the gospel of grace. We won't turn there, but in Galatians chapter 2, Paul even says, I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. And then he also says that Peter is an apostle to the Jews. So now, if you can imagine, instead of Paul and Peter getting along well and recognizing each other's unique calling, can you imagine if, if Paul would have demanded of Peter that he be just like him? Now, Paul or Peter, quit trying to reach the Jews. Let's go to the ends of the earth give up on them, shake the dust off your feet, let's go to the ends of the earth together and reach all these Gentiles, let's reach the pagans. But that's not what he said. He respected the ministry that was given to Peter. He respected what God was doing in the life of Peter. 
He wasn't making it a competition. He wasn't trying to persuade. He wasn't doing any of that, but he was respecting God's calling. And this is abundantly clear in Acts 21. This is the last passage in Acts I want us to see together today is Acts 21, starting in verse 17. I find this to be an incredibly fascinating encounter where Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, goes to Jerusalem. In case you didn't know, a lot of Jews in Jerusalem. Okay, so Paul goes to Jerusalem and he meets with James, and James was somebody who already had a ministry there. James was somebody that God had used to minister to the Jews. Now read this encounter and look how Paul responds to James. Starting in verse 17, it says, After we arrived in Jerusalem, their brethren received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands are there among the Jews of those who have believed? And they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore, do this that we tell you. Can you imagine saying that to Paul? Do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. Then Paul took the men and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. Paul obeyed James. Now that is an interesting situation. Paul told the Gentile believers they didn't need to put themselves under the law. You are not under the law, but under grace. Paul wrote that to Gentile believers. And yet, here are some Jewish believers, and James says, yeah, that doesn't really fly with them. They hear that and they say, no, that's, that's not what we're going to do. We're going to keep doing the law. We're going to keep going to the temple. We're going to keep putting ourselves under vows. And so James says to Paul, as an act of good faith, go do that with them. And he did. Paul recognized that he wasn't the only one that God was using. Paul recognized that he wasn't the only one in the kingdom that he wasn't the only teacher in the church. And so instead of arguing with James, instead of competing with James and saying, no, James, no, this is what we need to do, Paul submitted to James. It's a really fascinating case study. And we can take that from Paul's life and we can see in the church today how each one of us have different convictions. There are different areas of belief where we're going to have some disagreement. Again, there are different giftings. There are different callings that God has placed on our lives about who we are to reach and how we are to do it. But can we get along in the middle of all that? Can we have peace in the middle of all that? Not only can we do it, but yes, we can and should. We should do this. In fact, in Ephesians 5.21, an amazing verse, it says that believers are to submit to one another. We're to submit to one another in the church. 
How can you avoid competition? How can you avoid conflict? How can you avoid comparing yourself against yourself and competing and seeing who's the best? How about this? Submit to one another. All of us submitting to one another, recognizing and respecting the different gifts that God has given. Well, it was evident that God had assigned Corinth to Paul, or He had assigned Paul to Corinth. And yet the false teachers in that church were not respecting that. They were not respecting God's calling, God's gifting of Paul in that way. In his first letter to them, 1 Corinthians 4.15, Paul mentioned to them, look, you can have many tutors in Christ, many mentors, many teachers, but you have only one father. Paul was there 18 months planting that church. It was through him that that church started. And it should have been evident to them that this was Paul's unique calling, but the church had forgotten. And back in 2 Corinthians 10, 12, they have been comparing themselves with themselves, measuring themselves by themselves, and had become a competitive disaster. The Corinthian church was plagued with a competitive spirit that was fueled by a handful of men. It made them a dog-eat-dog church that if Paul were to walk back in there while those false teachers were still having influence, it would be like walking into a hornet's nest. Paul wasn't going to be welcomed. He was going to be debated with. Paul wasn't going to be prayed for by this church or prayed over by this church. He could have been kicked out by this church because they had made the whole thing a competition. The false teachers in Corinth were likely claiming that Paul pursued his own fame and his own glory through crafty strategies, through worldly means, that Paul was making a name for himself and he was all about himself. But the false teacher said, but we're here now and we'll lead you into truth. A total projection of their own sin onto Paul. The stuff that plagued their own heart, they had been saying belonged to Paul and putting him down in the church. I mean, think about it. Paul was saved by God in a miraculous way. He met the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. He was sent by Jesus to be an apostle to the Gentiles, a very unique calling. He was there in Corinth for 18 months, a very difficult situation, trying to see if God would start a church in this pagan city. And he did. There was a church. And then after he leaves, there are these imposters that come in, these interlopers who work their way into the church and try to steal away what the Lord had done through him. And now the whole narrative is reversed where the false teachers are saying, Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. He's trying to steal away our glory and our influence in this church. What a situation. Homer Kent in his commentary said of what was going on in Corinth at the time, he said, it is certainly not wrong to build on another's labors. Paul himself had said, I planted, Apollos watered. What was wrong at Corinth was that certain waterers were taking credit for the planting and they were discrediting the planter. Their claim to Paul's labor actually revealed them to be false teachers. These people who came in and wanted to take away all of Paul's influence exposed their true heart, that they were not godly at all. Their pride revealed their true standing. In MacArthur's commentary, he said, false teachers continually seek to widen their influence and gain greater prestige, fame, and wealth. To that end, they often overstate or even falsify their qualifications and gifts. And that's exactly what was going on in Corinth. And the New Testament speaks strongly about false teachers. 
This isn't the only place in the Bible that talks about those who would come in the church and seek to rob the church of the, the precious, beautiful faith in Jesus. It says in Jude, verses 12 and 13, Jude's only one chapter, that these false teachers are men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you, with you without fear, caring for themselves. False teachers, it says, are clouds without water, carried along by winds. Autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam. Wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. The Bible's got strong words about false teachers. We have to be oh so careful who we listen to who we accept as a teacher or a tutor. Well, Paul, the true apostle in this situation, he was not going to play the false apostle's game of proving himself. Look again at verses 13 and 14. Paul says, We will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. For we are not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach you, reach to you, for we were the first to come even as far as you in the gospel of Christ. Paul here is saying that the Lord apportions to each of us a ministry, and the Corinthians should have recognized Paul's. His team was the first to reach them. You see that in verse 14? Paul's missionary team was the first to reach the Corinthians, and they sought faithfulness to God in that calling. God gave them Corinth. They won over Corinth for the gospel. And they sought faithfulness in that calling, and they proved it by the way that they lived. And so it was good, Paul says in verse 13, for them to boast. But they were boasting in the Lord's work through them. Paul would only boast in the Lord's work, not in his own work apart from the Lord, but in the Lord's work through him, in the gospel success that the Lord granted. He refused to boast beyond that. Paul said, I'm not going to go beyond my sphere and, and boast in areas where it's not appropriate, but I will look at what the Lord has done and I will boast in the Lord. That was his view. So, as we, again, make application to us today, given, given our unique ministries in the church and the, the unique ways that God has, has equipped us to serve, what do we have to gain in comparing ourselves with others. Or, I think maybe what happens just as often is comparing others with others. What do we have to gain from that? If, if all things are equal, and by that I mean if each one is seeking to be faithful in the ministry that God has given each one, what use is it comparing and contrasting? Where does that lead? It only goes one place. It only goes down. It only goes down. We cannot compare ourselves with others. This, this only leads to pride. And it has devastated many Christians. It has devastated many Christian leaders when they've compared themselves with other people. You, you have to view that temptation when it comes up in your heart to compare yourself with others. You have to view that as a weed in the garden that's just showing the first blade. And, and you got to yank it out of the garden. You have to take it out. But instead, what, what happens to so many Christians is we become fixated on this, about looking inward and comparing ourselves with other people, and all we're doing is watering the weed. And it grows, and it becomes a bigger problem, and, and next thing you know, it's infested, it's taken up so much of your view. 
that all you're doing all day is living in the fruit of this weed of comparing yourself with other people. It's, it's wicked. It's awful. And your boasting, soon enough, will no longer be in the Lord. But your boasting will only be in yourself. It's destructive. Pride is a killer. And that's what was going on in this church. Comparing themselves with themselves. May it never happen in this church. May we never compare and contrast ourselves as members of Christ's body in Payson, Utah, and claim that we're better than each other. Ever. It should never happen in the church of God. Our instruction here is to embrace what God has for us and to be faithful in that. The Lord will sort it all out when He comes. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait for the Lord, who will expose the motives of men's hearts. And at that point, each man's praise will come to him from God. So right now, in the meantime, if you're patting yourself on the back, if you're praising yourself, you're in sin. And that will be judged by our Lord. Because it's not the one who commends himself, it's the one whom the Lord commends. He's the one who's approved. Paul wasn't going now to be content with just saying this and leaving it at that. Paul wasn't going to be content with merely seeking to win back their affections. But Paul wanted them to expand their view of what God was going to continue doing through him. He wanted them to join him in his vision for the future. Pick up with me in verse 15, where he says again that they're not boasting beyond their measure, that is, in other men's labors, but with the hope that as your faith grows, we will be within our sphere enlarged even more by you, so as to preach the gospel even to the regions beyond you, and not to boast in what has been accomplished in the sphere of another. But he who boasts is to boast in the Lord, for it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends." Paul says here an amazing little phrase that his hope is to go beyond you. <laughs> he says in verse 16, I want to go beyond you, Corinthians. The apostle desired that his team would be effective beyond Greece. You remember uh, the commission that was given to the disciples, particularly in Acts chapter 1, where the Lord Jesus said to his followers that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Paul's eye was always on the ends of the earth. And back then they knew so little of what that meant. I would suspect even today we know little of what that means. But even then, less so. It was, it was the ends of the earth. He wanted to go as far as the Lord would allow. And we know that he wanted to go to Rome. He wanted to go to Spain. He wanted to take the gospel beyond Corinth because he had a holy discontentment. He had a, a righteous discontentment to do more for the Lord. Paul had a keen sense of awareness that there's just one life that we're given. And in this one life, it is our duty, if we are Christians, to serve the Lord with all that we have. You got one life. You got one shot at this. And Paul, I think, understood that greatly. He knew the Lord could return any day, and he wanted to go beyond Corinth. He was a pioneer missionary to go where no one had gone before, a, a very extremely difficult calling. I mean, I, you, you read these stories about Christians who go into these jungles, these unreached people groups, languages that no one's ever spoken. 
uh, beyond that tribe. Languages that no one's ever tried to learn. Language that's never been written down. It's always just been oral. I mean, that, that's extremely difficult. But Paul was called to do it. He was willing to do it. And some even today are willing to do it. But it requires the blessing of the omnipotent God, doesn't it? He was willing to go, and yet he was never going to boast in another man's work. Paul's goal and the goal of the group was to see their work be enlarged, it says, that, that their ministry would be enlarged, God permitting. But what is quite interesting here, when you read verses 15 and 16, is that their ministry was going to grow in accordance with the Corinthians' maturity. Did you catch that the first time we read through it? It says in verse 15, their hope is that as the Corinthians' faith would grow, that they would be within their sphere enlarged even more by them. The magnification, the growth of the ministry, Paul saw as tied directly to the maturity of the Corinthians. Paul saw his whole ministry as joined to the churches that he planted. He was constantly writing back to them or communicating back to them for prayer support, for financial support. And he knew that practically he couldn't find success beyond Corinth if Corinth was still a mess. Kind of like, uh, you know, the elder qualification that how can a man manage the church of God if he can't even manage his own household? That's why a man must be a good manager of his whole own household if he is to be an elder in the church. How, how could Paul go beyond Corinth if Corinth was messed up? His desire was to see them get back on the right track and to mature. He saw their growth as necessary to the success of his ministry. Paul saw the, the growth, the spiritual growth of the Corinthians as necessary to his success in ministry. So another application point here that we can pick up along the way, why should you grow in your faith? Why should you be concerned with growing as a Christian and maturing in the gospel? It's because your life is a support to others. Your life has an impact beyond you, perhaps more so than you recognize. And, and as Christians, as we come together and we form a local church here, our church has an influence on other people. Our church is a support to other people. So why should we grow in the faith together? Well, if for no other reason, and there are other reasons, but if for no other reason, then for the sake of supporting other believers, because their success many times does depend on our maturity. Consider Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 and 19. Paul wrote to this church, reminding them to pray for him. In Ephesians 6, 18, he said, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. But specifically, pray on my behalf, Paul says, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. I doubt the Corinthians were praying for him like that at this point. The Corinthians had gotten so messed up in their own pride that they likely were not supporting Paul in the ways they should have. In Colossians chapter 4, the same thing. Colossians 4, starting in verse 2, Paul says, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open to us a door for the Word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned. 
that I may make it clear the way I ought to speak. It says in the book of James that the prayer of a righteous man avails much. Paul wanted much support from the Corinthians and from the other churches he was involved with, that they would be mature, that they would be growing in holiness and remembering him in prayer. So he desired to expand his influence, but he desired to do this without boasting. Those final two verses of the chapter, he was going by God's grace to expand his influence, but to do so without boasting in himself. True servants work for God's glory alone. True servants work for God's approval alone. And true servants boast in God alone, not in themselves. This was never to be made about Paul. All of Paul's work here was for the fame of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was for, ultimately, the magnification of the gospel. The false apostles that were in Corinth, it was all about their own glory. They all wanted the the attention. They all wanted the focus to be on them. They wanted to be exalted in men's eyes. They wanted to keep comparing themselves with themselves and come out on top. But Paul wanted to boast in God alone. So he says, verse 18, It is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. Now that word commend is not one that we use very often today. A really simple, basic definition of that word would be to favorably enjoin yourself to someone else, to show favor toward in a way that unites two people or two parties, to show favor in a uniting or joining way. We see Paul commending people in his letters. He writes to the Corinthians and says, I commend to you, I favorably enjoin to you our sister Phoebe. She's hosting a church in her house in Sincrea. He was commending Phoebe. And even Commending himself. We see that happening in 2 Corinthians in chapter 6. Paul says, starting in verse 1 of chapter 6, working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Verse 3, giving no cause for offense in anything, so that the ministry will not be discredited, but in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God. So Paul not only commended others, but he commended himself. He was favorably enjoining himself to the Corinthians, pointing to himself as a servant of God and not doing so in pride, but doing so in honest humility. Now, it's interesting. We just read Paul commending himself, but we also just read a few moments ago that that was the error of the false teachers. Look again at verse 12. Paul says, we are not so bold to commend ourselves. And yet we just saw a few chapters earlier, he commended himself. You know what the big difference is? One was doing so for the glory of themselves, and the other was doing so for the glory of God. False teachers do not commend themselves as servants. False teachers commend themselves as masters, and there's a big difference. False teachers commend themselves out of pride. True servants commend themselves out of honest humility. True servants always commend honestly for the glory of God alone. So as we consider commendation and we wind down the thoughts on this passage, we have to figure out what this means in verse 18 where he says, look, if you're commending yourself in pride, that's not going to go anywhere. If you're commending yourself for yourself, that's not going to get you anywhere with God. But the one whom the Lord commends, he's the one who is truly approved. So let's finish with this, answering this question. 
what is the commendation of the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, there's a lot riding on this in this verse. You see that? I mean, we're talking about approval from God. So you better know what this means. What does it mean to be approved by God, and what is the commendation of the Lord Jesus? How do we get this ultimate approval from God? Well, we have to start with the gospel in that we are eternally commended to God through the work of Jesus Christ. We are eternally favorably enjoined to God through the work of Jesus. You are united to God in such a way that He shows favor toward you forever and ever because of the work of Christ. We have an initial eternal commendation that comes to us when we recognize that there is nothing we can do to rescue ourselves from our dark condition, our fallen condition, but that only God Himself could save us. When we look to the cross and we see the Son of God, the Son of Man, one who was truly God and truly man in the flesh, who died in our place for our sins and rose again on the third day, all on our behalf, when we recognize that and by faith alone trust in what He has done, not bringing any of our works to the table, but accepting only the work of Jesus, we are once for all, forever commended to God by faith. No one can ever reverse that. That commendation will never be taken away. You can be made right with God today by believing in what Jesus has done, and you will forever be commended, favorably enjoined to God because of Jesus. That is the gift of grace that is offered to you, and that is the gift of grace that has changed so many of us. It is not by works. We are not commended to God by earning His favor. That would be working for commendation, but instead we receive commendation passively by faith alone, by trusting in what Jesus has done. Now yet, as someone becomes a Christian, now the work begins. There was no work to get you to the cross. There was no work to get you through the cross. But as a Christian, the life you are now living is for God. And everything in your life now you have to see as being touched by God. And you have to bring God's will to bear on your life in every area. And so there's actually a commendation that we do seek, not for salvation, but to please our Lord Jesus. We should always be seeking how to please the Lord. Ephesians 5 verse 10 says that. Always abounding in, in the work of the Lord, seeking to please Him in everything. So in verse 18, I think in one sense, Paul is calling them to check their consciences, look at what's happening, contrast Paul with the false teachers, see that one is humble and serving and the other is prideful and self-exalting, that they could ask themselves the question, who does the Lord really approve in this situation, the false teachers or Paul? I think in one sense he's, he's saying that, but I think in another sense, Paul is reminding them again in this letter of the day that we find out whom the Lord commends, because there is coming a day when we will find out what we have done for the Lord, whether it stands or whether it burns. There is a judgment seat for all believers. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, just a few chapters before this, that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, this judgment is not determining if we are saved. This judgment is not determining if we spend eternity with God. This judgment is determining how we spend eternity with God, what our lives in eternity will look like based on 
rewards given based on what burns up, what remains of the works that we've done for Jesus as believers in His work alone. In 1 Corinthians 3, this is probably the clearest passage on what this day will look like. This is the last passage I'll cross-reference for you today. It's 1 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 11. The Apostle Paul wrote to this same church saying, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day. This is the judgment day for believers. The day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Wow, what, a, what an amazing passage, and what a picture that should put in our minds of the commendation of the Lord. In that day, there will be commendation, but there will also be works burning. There will be believers who suffer loss because they did not pursue the Lord's approval in this life. This should provoke us on to living for the Lord with each breath that He gives us. What we do in this life will either be commended or you could say praised by God in the end, or it will be rejected. It will be burned with fire by God in the end. Everything we do in this life. We have to think about this as we live not just our nine-to-five jobs Monday through Friday, but how we interact in the church. I think it's especially true there. So we must be striving to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, not striving to be exalted in other people's eyes in the here and now. We must be striving for the blessing of God, the praise that comes from God in the end, not the pats on the back that other creatures can give us here and now. We must seek to agree with verse 17. He who boasts is to boast in the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank You for the strong reminders that You give us in Your Word, that we are to look to You, that we are to serve You, that we are to seek You, to reject any fallen, prideful, creaturely praise, and serve you alone. Lord, help us to pull out the weeds of pride, of, of competition that spring up in our lives, that we would seekly, or simply seek faithfulness in the lane that you've given us, in the sphere that you've given us, that we wouldn't try to push anyone else out, even if it's just in our own minds, but that we would honor one another, that we would truly love one another from the heart and that we would pursue your approval alone. Lord, thank you so much for being so patient with us and gracious and merciful and kind. Lord, help us to reflect that as we live with others. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.